Welcome to the Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. Hello and welcome to the Dividend Cafe podcast. This is David Bonson. I am the managing partner and the chief investment officer at the Bonson Group. And we are joined again here today by our investment committee. And we've kind of subbed out one guy who was here last time and brought in another guy who was not here last time. So welcome, Robert Graham. First time doing our little group uh, podcast here. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Uh, Robert was out of town with clients last week, and then Brian Seitel is out of town with clients this week. And so uh, it works out well because we have five people on our investment committee, and we have four chairs at our Mm -hmm. podcast studio. So hopefully people will just continue to have different meetings one at a time, and I won't have to pick who will be off the island on a given week. Okay, so we uh, we last got together, and it was kind of a couple days after the announcement uh, via Twitter that President Trump was saying we're going to go forward with 10% tariff on the remaining $300 billion of imports. And it's a good thing that we are recording the podcast end of the day Tuesday, because if we recorded it again yesterday, we would have uh, had a whole different conversation than where we are uh, today. So let me do this, guys, before we get into it and update with kind of where things went today in the newest announcement out of the White House. Uh, since we recorded last Monday, market went down, what was it, about 750 points on the day we recorded. It had been down close to 1,000, made back a couple hundred points. Then it went up four or 500 the next day, then kind of broke even. Then it had an up 300 another day and then a down 300 day. So volatility has been very elevated. But actually, from the time we recorded to where we are right now, uh, the market is probably up a little bit. Uh, if it's down, it's literally like 100 points. Uh, be, uh, yet with tremendous swings on the way because very big up days, very big down days. So the market as we sit here recording is at 26, so let's call it 26,300, okay, in the Dow. Uh, and I would say that the um, initial drop was very rational, anticipation of this elevation, but that right now it's difficult to talk about the trade war impact and we more have to talk about the volatility because the trade war, there isn't news to price in. There isn't the sort of certainty as to what exactly is going to be happening. Evidence by market action today, Dow up 400 points. Look at the NASDAQ up 150 points. They basically announced that uh, a lot of the tariffs are now on hold again. Is this the third time or fourth time that they've done this? Announced tariffs and then said, okay, we're going to hold off on it. It's at least the third time. This is the first time that I was surprised that a concession was made uh, early on. I thought it would take a while for the administration to make some sort of concession. And, uh, you know, they came out and they said that they were going to suspend the tariffs. So uh, it was surprising for me to see it. But, I mean, it wasn't the first time they've done that. No, no, no. So when they – back uh, a month or so ago when they – said, never mind, we will let American companies trade with Hawaii, that you were not surprised then. No, I was not surprised because it, it, they weren't, things hadn't escalated at that point. Now it was different. The dynamic between China and the U.S. was different and that it didn't sound, seem like any side was going to, was going to give at all. And, it, and, you know, everybody wanted to save face and China wasn't budging and Trump looked like he wasn't going to budge and all of a sudden, it looked like okay. Well, you know, we'll suspend tariffs. I. It was interesting to me. It sounds like you're not you're not surprised over the concession. Sounds, well, yeah. you got to remember. You said the administration. I think there's a key word there. This is something that the entire administration was against, and it was the president who, of mm-hmm. course, has the 
the decision-making authority who was for it. So I think in this case, the heads in the administration, who I'm going to just for simplicity's sake call the mnuchin Cudlow wing, although Bob Whiteheiser is on their side on this one. He's often a little bit more protectionist. But in this one, even he felt that, you know, that this is going to hit consumers more directly. The it, When Pete Navarro, who's the trade advisor, um, when he does press, he is saying this won't hurt the economy. That we're fine. This is great. We're going to get a better deal. The economy knows it. Markets holding up together. And the other guys are telling the president, you know, look, this is going to be impacted. Now, the first time I said, oh, thank God, he doesn't really mean what he's saying. Like, it, like if the president really believed it's easy to win a trade war, you know, we're getting <laughs> so much money out of this tariff stuff. It just it's amazing how well the U.S. is doing from it. He says all that. And I don't mind politicians being politicians, but it would scare me if he really believed it. But remember, this is about six months ago. They started these huge subsidies to the farmers. So you don't go give farmers 11 to $18 billion of offset if there's nothing to offset, if everything's going great. That was them recognizing, look, this soybean thing is hitting them hard, so we have to give them some money to offset it. What happened today to me was the same thing with farmers but with American people that buy electronic product. They just said, how are you going to get a tariff in on iPhones mm. and mm -hmm. on computer equipment? <clears throat> without it being a more clear tell of how tariffs actually work. Yeah. What say thee, Julian? Uh, I wanted to say, I mean, the, what I found really weird about the announcement today is the timing, like why 12th of August when nothing is going to happen before for the 1st of September anyway? You know, why so quickly after having this 10% on $300 billion? It's It's kind of strange, and, you know, I guess that's the way it is with uh, this president, so we're going to have to get used to that. And, you know, try to forget the noise and focus on the fundamentals. So back to earnings, mm -hmm. back to where the tenure is, which make everything look super cheap when, you know, you have the tenure at 1.6, 1.7%. And so to me, that's really the surprise is why now when there's really nothing to do until the 1st of September and you still, you don't have the Fed meeting until 18th of September, right? So again, like... You know why uh, and why do this today when you know you're gonna help the market is gonna, are gonna be good again and then people are gonna say so what happens with the Fed now do we need two cuts before the end of the year or, you know if, if we don't have this trade tension anymore it's on hold for another six months maybe things are, are not as bad the equity market rally again and then we start uh, discounting less uh, cuts I guess so we are back in the in the circle. But are you in the camp that actually believes the Fed is gonna cut and not cut? around where we're on the trade war? Or are you just referring to the perception in the market that there's well, an inverse well, correlation? See, I think it's nonsense. I, I don't believe the Fed's going to make their decision around the trade war whatsoever. Probably not, but I guess the Fed doesn't. I, I mean, my experience is that they don't like to do anything that's not, they don't like to surprise the market. Right, so it's correct. really important to look at where the implied implications, mm -hmm. you know, uh, cuts are in the market. So they will always try to direct the market to not surprise it. But I would think that regardless of what happened, probably because they won't have, a real impact on the economy um, yet this year. I would think that, you know, what the market is pricing is probably right, which, which you're going to have another one in September. 100%. And, 
well, they say ninety percent chance at the moment. I guess it was a hundred last week. It's at ninety. Yeah, now. now it's at eighty-eight today. I checked eighty-eight percent of one uh, chance of a one cut and twelve percent of two cuts. No, so that okay. Still today. So it's a hundred percent chance of one cut yeah, or more. Or more exactly. Yeah, and so then still and then twelve percent of a second of a second right. one. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And then I haven't checked um, later on in the year, but I'm assuming it's still it's, it's pricing like seventy. As, it's like seventy yeah. percent for that third cut by the end of the year. So, Robert, what's the answer? Why did President do it today? Uh, I'll give you three choices. We'll do this multiple choice. Is it just complete random, just Trump being Trump and absolutely no rhyme or reason? Did he panic from the stock market? Or is there some back-channel negotiation going on that we're just not privy to? You know, as close to option B as I could get is what I would say. You know, Trump, in my opinion, is looking at the stock market as a feedback loop for the policy he makes via his tweets, right? And I think these days policy is following tweets more so than it has before, and we need to come to terms with that. I think echoing what Julian said, though, fundamentals are what we need to look at in the long term. And I think the Fed uh, continuing to say that it's data dependent is important, but look look at the probability of the cuts going forward. I think that, that speaks volumes about it. And Trump is getting the cuts that he wanted through this increased tweet volatility that he's making. So, so you, you both of you sound like you're on the other side of that. You believe that the Fed is actually responding to Trump. That is responding to fears in the market about the trade war, that these cuts that they're going to do, they would not otherwise be doing if it wasn't for Trump shaking things up a little. Yeah, I'm interested in why you you, you don't think that's the case. So so none, nothing that comes out of this hoopla of the trade war you think is affecting the Fed whatsoever. Well, that that's not exactly what I said. I, I think that the trade war is, in fact, very much a domino in the underlying business investment. And the underlying uh, economic growth that mm-hmm. the Fed wants to see sustained. So there's a cause and effect, but it is not the same as the volatility or noise from it. If the trade war is ended tomorrow, they announce the China deal, I think that the damage to business confidence has already been done and that the Fed is viewing their need for this quote unquote insurance cut as still on the table, that that would be there anyways. So they have never rationalized this around trade policy. They've rationalized it around we're below our inflation target. And I believe, uh, as I've written countless times, it was really the mistake they think they made in December, October of last year. The impact added to credit markets. They needed a way to unwind that. They began unwinding it in January with their microphone. Then they began unwinding it with rate policy in July. The trade war has increased the implied probability it's going to happen from the noise and the. But even then, the trade war goes away. I'm gonna. We're gonna talk in a second about five other things that could be jacking up, mm-hmm. jacking around with the stock market. Is there any? If the stock market is something below twenty six thousand, is there any doubt they're going to be cutting that rate? So in other words, the trade war happens to be the fill in the blank symptom, yeah. but it's ultimately market volatility. There, there. Robert made reference to the fact. They are coddling risk assets, and trade war gives them an excuse to do it, but they would find another excuse if it wasn't for the trade war. They want to cut this rate to unwind the tightening they did in Q4 of 2018. That's my belief. And I was going to say, actually, it's your second bullet one on the list, which we haven't addressed, which is currency. Yeah. And I would say it's probably the main reason for the cut. It's not trade war. I mean, trade war gives another reason, but the bigger issue that um, the U.S. has is the strength of the dollar. And when you listen to earnings calls, you know, companies complain about the trade war, about the uncertainty in China, but they also complain a lot about the U.S. dollar being so strong. 
And then when you have, you know, um, all these negative yields in the rest of the world, and with the U.S. being the only place where you can put money to work in, you know, in the government bond, that impacts the, the you know, the, the currency and that makes it uh, harder for U.S. companies to uh, uh, to compete. Well, that that's right. And it also invites other action from our own Treasury Department that, that could then become um, shocking into global markets. And so the threat of the U.S. intervening, you know, this is where the rate policy requires the Fed to act, and that impacts currency. But the Treasury Department has a lot of authority from Congress to intervene in currency markets as well. And to the extent the Fed can kind of get their dollar where they want it to be without Treasury having to get involved, mm -hmm. I think, is a big factor. But here, here's the other piece to what you're saying, and, and I think it reinforces my point. What was the 10-year before this latest escalation of trade war? Let's call it 2%. It may have been 205. It had been 190 before that. So, yes, this dropped the 10-year 20, 25 basis points. We're now at the 170 range, okay? So the yield curve is inverted further, but where? But it, the yield curve was inverted, and that was the, the issue the Fed's trying to deal with. They have a 90-day rate of money from their policy that's at 2.1% and, and a Fed that was at a, a 10-year that was at 2%. Now, the, they widened the inversion from the trade war, but I don't. I think the Fed has to try to uninvert the yield curve, no matter what Trump is tweeting. Yeah, I think the uh, I think the Fed, like like you said, I think the Fed has to has to try to deal with the inversion of the yield curve. Uh, going back to something you wrote a while ago, which talks about the 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 Fed is a truly independent. You know, obviously, you know, on paper it is. But uh, d d I mean, I'm not so sure that the all the Trump rhetoric and uh, you know, China is going is taking steal on our lunch and all this kind of talk is having no impact on the Fed whatsoever. Uh, my opinion might be a little different if uh, I didn't feel like Powell kind of kowtowed a little bit in Q4 of last year. Um, so, uh, you mean in Q1 of this year? Uh, oh, right. Okay. Uh, as far as uh, letting the markets know that um, that there was going to be some sort of uh, cycle of you know reduced rates and so on. So. Uh, yeah, so right, I, but I, I think I don't. I, I think that that is making my point. What yeah, Powell okay. did after months and months of mm -hmm. Trump jawboning him was tighten in the face of Trump. Then, the Bernanke and Yellen move was to kowtow to global markets, not to Trump and Twitter. Stock market dropped fourteen point four percent in one quarter, and high yield spreads blew out five hundred fifty basis points. Then Powell capitulated. But I would, I would even, I'm not only not sure that that's true that he's responding to Trump. I might even argue he is responding to Trump the opposite. I don't know. None of us can read his mind. But you could argue, would he have done 50 basis points instead of 25 in July, if he wasn't afraid of the perception of people saying, "Oh, he's just kowtowing, kowtowing to, to Trump." Um, everything he said economically rationalized. Two cut, two cuts at once, and they only did the one. So it almost made me think: if Trump's having an influence, it's the it's a it's the opposite direction. He's keeping him from acting because he's afraid of the perception of exactly what you're saying. I don't think any of us could really conclude what's going on because it requires reading his mind. But I've always felt this. I've felt this way. Even I've been very critical of all the past Fed chairs. I I'm not critical of them that they're about their earnestness. Like I take them at face value. 
Um, it's just that you, I guess you could argue that they may be like subconsciously, you know, affected by it. They can't enjoy Trump tweeting at him and so forth. But I, I think that these are serious people, serious economists, that a lot of times they're driven by a seriously faulty ideology, in my opinion. But I think that he is trying to be data dependent and so forth and so on. I just think they're stuck in a position there's no easy way out of. Um, and to the extent that it was someone said that last rate cut was because of Trump, the reality is, is Trump was wanting a lot more than one rate cut and he didn't do it. So do you see the Fed put, what we've been calling the Fed put for the last 10 years? Rest it's, of my life. It's still very much alive, Rest right? Rest of my life. I guess, yeah. Rest That's what it feels like. It'll never mm -hmm. go away. I don't know any historical precedent for a society getting used to low rates, for a society getting used to central bank coddling risk assets, and most importantly, and again, we could do, we should do multiple podcasts on this subject. Um, the government spending, the Fed doesn't have to monetize. Central banks now become a quasi-fiscal tool, not merely monetary, because there is no spending discipline in Europe. There's no spending discipline in Japan. No spending discipline in America. So central bank becomes a tool, which is where these negative yields really come from. It has everything to do with the size of government spending. Really nothing to do, I think, with macroeconomics. Okay, volatility. So yeah, we um, were up 400 today. We're down 400 yesterday. We talked about volatility last week. So we've talked about trade war, Trump, Twitter. Julian brought up the currency impact. I wrote an article last week about exactly why this is kind of an issue. Um, you know, so far, there's not been a lot of bite <clears throat> around the bark, but God, the bark is scary as could be. The, I, the idea that the president could order the Treasury Secretary to go intervene and sell up to $90 billion, he could sell up to $90 billion of dollars without... Uh, involving Congress or declaring a national emergency. To, to what extent would that be unprecedented going back? And I mean, that would seem to me is highly destabilizing to, to be, our credibility as a nation here. I think it would be highly destabilizing and it would have a tremendous impact on, on dollar demand and, and, and U.S. investment demand. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the, rem, the counter is but they haven't done it. So the threat of it is scary, but don't, you know, as long as it doesn't happen, I have anything to worry about. But, you know, you like to think you don't even have to worry about it being discussed. And, and you know, the, they have an emergency provision. He can order the Fed to go do things. Um, I will say this. I'm not being critical of the president. I'm making a comment on the environment we're in. They said there was a national security emergency to implement tar steel tariffs on Canada. So I think they're willing to call things an emergency that most people in the plainest meaning of those words would not consider to actually be a national emergency. Mm -hmm. What say you, Dale? Yeah, I think uh, with this president, a lot of those uh, superlatives kind of lose their meaning. I'm, Yeah, I, I could see Trump calling out the stops to do whatever, make uh, any sort of excuse and use any sort of, uh, uh, any sort of presidential action. Um, as far as uh, trying to weaken our currency and, uh, you know, anything to that effect, I'm like Robert, like Robert said, I'm totally against that type of manipulation. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's good for us. I don't think it's good for China in the long term. I don't think it's good for anybody. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hope that doesn't happen, but I assume that there will be some more volatility in the event that it does. So. 
I would I will defend the president for a second here, but I'm I'm in this sense. One of the things uh, I talked about in my article last week and what we talked about in 2016 with China, the the agreement reached in Shanghai, it was global coordination where everyone got together and said, let's all agree to do this together. And I don't really agree with those things, and Trump would refer to as globalism and this and that. But in that case, it was and, – and also the accord uh, that was reached with the so-called Plaza Accord of President Reagan in the mid-'80s. There was this sort of agreement as to how all these interests of varying countries come together. I don't want us to go intervene in the dollar and destabilize. But if they deemed that by not doing it and other countries are, it would not so much be our action or inaction. It would be the divergence. We just haven't really had much global currency divergence for most of my lifetime. I mean, excuse me, my adult lifetime. Because for the most part, currency volatility has been dramatically suppressed since the 80s. And there's been bouts of it here and there. But the point is, it's always been short-lived. It's usually been emerging current Russia, Thailand, things like that. But really, I think that um, the issue here is, could China end up going another direction violently that forces the U.S. to go another direction? And then does President Trump at that point appeal to the nationalistic impulse to say, hey, this is, we're yeah, we're doing this. Yes, it's destabilizing. We're being forced into it. Because I think that the American people largely bought that argument on trade. Uh, the, the idea, this we didn't start this trade war. There's been a trade war for 40 years and China started it. And then you kind of dig a little deeper and there's rhetoric around it. But you're like, what do you mean? And they say, oh, because they're stealing intellectual property. You go, well, that's not really what you said. That's a separate deal. So it's like bad actions, but they all get stirred in the same pot. And I think that that's what, where we could go with the currency deal too. And that would be my, my concern is that the president probably is not as afraid of going there as past presidents would be. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I see what, what you're saying, but I, I, I guess, you know, at the end of the day, if you, you know, he, he talks always about the, where the market is and, you know, having the Fed lowering rates. So he's very worried about, um, about the, uh, you know, the wealth creation from, from the having asset prices at the all time high. I think whatever, you know, he does at the end of the day, he has an agenda that's been, you know, it, it's done a lot of good, uh, good things for the economy, including lowering taxes. So, I would, um, you know, I don't think whatever it does will destabilize 100 years of, uh, you know, the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency and this country being the best place to put money to work and invest. So, Robert, how about it? Can he say, hey, I want a weaker dollar. Everyone else is doing it. We're going to do it. Can he say that stuff as long as he doesn't go do take an extreme action? Is that okay? Well, I, I happen to think he's not afraid of much except for losing the next election at this point in time. So I wouldn't put anything past him. Um, he can go ahead and say that, but you know, in, in my opinion, I don't think it's the right thing to go about doing that. Um, being the reserve currency is, you know, a privilege, and I I think we need to uphold that as much as we possibly can going forward. It's not inevitable that we stay in that position forever, but. With the rest of the world acting as they are, I, I see it for the foreseeable future. Hopefully, yeah. my my adult lifetime, I would say. So, uh, currency is a source of volatility uh, for these reasons we're discussing, and particularly the lack of certainty around what exactly the president would and would not do. Same exact thing can be applied to trade. Uh, Brexit. They have a hard deadline of October thirty-one. Boris Johnson, new prime minister, has said if there's not going to be a deal, we will go. I think most European unions believes him at this point. 
by the way, National Security Advisor John Bolton, colleague of mine at National Review, stated that they have told UK we fully support a no-deal mm-hmm. Brexit. I've been kind of longing for no-deal Brexit for the last several months because I sort of want to just call everybody else's bluff. The idea that the world would end if they don't have a deal in place, I think, would be very quickly called out. And immediately Germany would be in such a worse position than England that all of a sudden a deal would get done. But even I say it certainly could enhance volatility. So we have an uncertain outcome in Brexit, and they cannot politically punt that again. He has to do something, either full-blown exit or get a deal done with the EU. That's assuming he's still in the job yeah. by uh, the end of October because that's quite a, it's quite possible that uh, he loses his majority by that time and you have new elections. I think or... the betting odds say that's like a 11% chance. Well, they just got um, walloped over in Wales though, right? He lost a couple uh, MPs in one of those elections, right? Yeah. yeah. So, But again, uh, the overall complexity of their parliamentary uh, support is still overwhelmingly his favor. My worry there is that we have another delay. And to me, I think the worst that can happen is what's happening is that there's no no decision. They keep delaying. So whether you stay, whether you leave, you know, make up your mind and then you can move from there. But until you make a decision, nobody wants to invest. The rules aren't clear. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the worst thing you can do to, to the economy. Yeah. So it's a, it's a potential source of volatility. Out of the uncertainty. Yeah, I think it's a potential source of volatility. I do think that out of all the geopolitical things we have on this list here, trade war, currency, and I know we're going to get to Hong Kong in a moment, I do think that Brexit is a little lower down on the list, just given the length of time it's been going on. It's been telegraphed. Um, So uh, There was a real well-known British band once called The Who who had a song called Won't Get Fooled Again. We've been told Brexit was going to ruin the world about five times now, and I think people yeah. are sick of hearing it. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so too. And 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 I do, so so for for reasons that you know the market snapped back a few times on some of those scares, and I think it's lower down less. I mean, obviously, I could be wrong. Maybe I know everybody freaks out over a no deal Brexit, but I I don't see it happening. So Hong Kong. Is that a legitimate source of volatility? Is it more a political story than a market story, Robert? It's certainly a political story. And I'll just say that the the whole one country, two systems uh, philosophy is dead. It's gone. Uh, and if it's not a, a big signal to Taiwan, I don't know what is in this case. Um, in my opinion, I think Carrie Lam is gone. I think she'll resign. I believe uh, Beijing expressed support for her. How much that actually means, I don't know. Um, this is different, though. You know, everyone remembers 1989 Tiananmen Square, right? There were global reporters there necessarily. We saw some footage. China, I'm sure, would like to do something, you know, whether it's the little blue men infiltrating the police forces, what have you, but they can't on a public scale go in and crack down on it the way they really want to mm-hmm. right now. The other thing I fear One is... One famous shot of that dissenter at Tiananmen Square was big enough, but four million iPhones... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But but you think that's what's holding them back, and I, I would agree with you. But but is there economic uh, uh, con- contributor to volatility out well, of I, Hong well, Kong? Well, I do think so because Hong Kong is still uh, providing a good deal of uh, exposure for uh, China to the global markets. I believe the Shenzhen Hong Kong exchange is still a decent source of uh, liquidity for them. Who's who's going to want to access those markets in, in a situation when there's turmoil, total command and control? And don't forget, we have a lot of the Commonwealth judges retiring here in the next couple of years in Hong Kong. So as a center for, for legal resources or to administer your, your company in Hong Kong, I, I don't know that I'd want to do that in the next couple of years going forward. So in terms of domiciles, liquidity, I think it is an economic factor. 
Interesting. Julian has a pretty cynical view about this. That I, I happen to probably take his side on it a little bit. But well, if you uh, take his side on it, you can't say Julian has a cynical view. <laughs> well, he, I convinced he, he convinced you. me. He convinced okay. me. Yeah. So do tell. Uh, well, no, 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 no. I'll correct if I disagree. You go, you go and lay it out. <laughs> no, I guess yeah. I, I think, I mean, I was saying to me, I think it's not a big deal because I guess for me, um, I think... Um, Hong Kong is really the zone of influence of China. They, you know, it's been 22 years now. I mean, we're going to protest. Europe and the U.S. are going to protest. That's diplomatic channels. And we're going to do nothing else than protest because there's nothing you can really do about that. Uh, what's happening there? Um, at the moment, you have just the airport blocked by 5,000 people. I, I think the Chinese let that happen because it's been two days. It's no big deal. Um, there's been, you know, I guess the economy is still working. They are, you know, I guess it's not big enough that they really have to intervene yet. But, you know, if it gets really out of control, they will probably, um, there'll be some blood and they will, um, they will do what they have to do to, uh, to stop the, the, the protest. But is that going to really impact the economy? Probably not. Do a lot of global investors not necessarily understand the nuances of what investing on the Hong Kong exchange means versus investing in China. Probably. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. I would think most I people. I notice sometimes when we look at emerging markets portfolios, they even lump sometimes Taiwan, Hong Kong, China all in together. And I think that there is a sort of baby with bathwater effect on this that it just has, it could be very modest, but there's some compression of valuation that you would expect from investing sure. in that region as they associate all of it in just sort of an unstable uh, context. Yes. But then again, like if you look at the underlying companies that are listing in Hong Kong, I mean, um, that makes the case how much that of makes their business worse. are they doing in Hong Kong? Probably like 1% or 10%. And so... Oh, but I think that the blend of China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan for most U.S. emerging markets investors is north of 50%. Mm. That blend is often north of 50%, not 1% Hong Kong and 50% mm -hmm. China, 10, 20 in Taiwan, 10, 20 in Hong Kong, 30, 40 in China. That much. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just as far as the companies they own. Uh, the exchanges they trade on. The exchanges they trade, exchanges on. They trade yeah. on. Okay. You're talking about no, the I revenue. Talking, no, I was talking about the impact on the earnings, like where okay. you know, revenue is okay. generated, earnings are generated. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't think it's a big fundamental thing to underlying earnings, but these things, though, if they, if, if they only traded off fundamentals, it would be worse, not, yeah. not better. So you have like really unattractive fundamentals combined with mm. right the the uncertainty I think in the in in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, well, then the last thing we've kind of already talked about, I listed the Fed, and we've discussed what it might be motivating, what might not be, what they're going to end up doing. I'm 100 percent with you, Julian. I think we look to the Fed funds futures to get an idea, and I believe here's my probability. The probability that the Fed will do something different than what the futures market says they're going to do, I'm putting at 0%. Everyone agree with that? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes. So we get uh, two more rate cuts by the end of the year, one September, one December. Do we get three more rate cuts by the end of the year, two September and one December or vice versa? Uh, what are we at? 50 more to go, 75 more to go, Robert? I don't think it can be 75. I'm, I'm at 50 here. I'm, you know, I'm a probabilistic guy. I like to assign probabilities thing. But if I'm making, uh, you know, I have to make a guess. I would go. I would go fifty-two. I think things. I don't see them cutting that much. Yeah. Fifty base points more on top of the twenty-five they've already done. Uh, yeah, on top of the twenty-five. They've so done. Fed funds futures rate about one hundred fifty base points. Yeah, that that would be my guess. Would, yeah. I agree. I would say three cuts this year. That's what we were uh, expecting a few months ago, and as 
probably still the case. When is the next tightening on the balance sheet, meaning roll-off? What is the next dollar that they let come off of their balance sheet, which presently sits just a little shy of $4 trillion? Want me to cheat and just tell you? Yeah, I never got that data. We won't see it again in our <laughs> lifetime, possibly. Okay. I don't really believe that. I do not believe we will see it until after the next recession. There will be no more tightening until after the next recession. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. So what's this? What do I? Why do? Why would that uh, enhance volatility? The markets are not stupid. The markets know that the Fed is going to go into the next recession with, according to what all of us at the table just said. A Fed funds rate of 150 basis points. What was the Fed funds rate when the financial crisis started? Um, good question. Like 2008, uh, like four, 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 four and a half, maybe? Four and a half percent. Mm -hmm. It'd been higher. They'd already cut a little in advance of it. So they had, they had 400 basis points of ammunition they're not going to have now. And they had 600 billion on the balance sheet. And now they have 4 trillion. I think that adds to volatility too. If it doesn't, it should be. Of people wondering, what is the Fed's ammunition going to be if and when another, or not if, but when another recession happens? So we're, we're making a case for there being good excuses out there for volatility to be enhanced, but we're not focused on short-term volatility. You made the comment earlier, what are the fundamentals? Yeah. So we believe there's an overall reasonably healthy fundamental environment in the context of a elevated volatility environment. We haven't had that elevated volatility for a lot of this year. It's it's back now. If First of all, let's just get a consensus. Is that the outlook right now? Modestly positive fundamentals with significantly enhanced volatility. That's that's my call in the current environment. Robert? Agreed. Dave? Uh, I would say that uh, I don't think the volatility is going to be as bad as it has been this, this past week or two, but I would say that, yeah, enhanced relative to... Uh, earlier this year or so. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm also a believer of uh, lower volatility uh, because I think this is, you know, this caught uh, people by surprise, clearly, this big announcement, and you're not going to have that many like that, hopefully. And and then it's, you know, it's the month of August. It's pretty quiet. There's nothing else to talk about. The earnings season is over. When you go back to September, we're going to talk about the Fed. Then October, November, we're going to have Q3 earnings. So other things to talk about. Fed would, comes out in September and cuts rates one quarter point as you're forecasting. And then he does a press conference and says, oh, we don't really think there's a whole lot more to go. Brexit is not resolved. Trump is tweeting one day, we're going to tariff him and it's awesome. And the next day, oh, it's a lovely letter I got from North Korea. All, so those things have all been volatility creators. Yeah. All of those things are likely to last at least another month or two, no? I mean, we could, we could get volatility back in the 20s, like we've seen, but are we going to see like 30, 35, like we've seen? You're uh, talking about the VIX level. Like VIX, yeah, I'm talking okay. about the VIX. Uh, because I guess we're used to like 12, 10, 10, 10 to 12. 12. Yeah. So, so 20, if you're predicting 20, you're predicting enhanced volatility relative to the median of the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I guess, I think so. But uh, I mean, the last couple of years were probably exceptional in terms of low volatility. So I wouldn't expect that to be the norm. Okay. So I think more like in the mid-teens, like 15, with some spikes around 20% vol, which we've, we've seen. And, and, okay. uh, and, but not, not a lot of 25% days like we've had, uh, you know, the last few days, I guess. So what you're describing is exactly what I think will happen, okay. but I would call it enhanced volatility. I think to, it feel, these days, for right or for wrong, it feels like that's more volatile investors, partially because they've, yeah. they've gotten complacent from 2017's yes, hyper-low volatility. Yeah. 
So what do we do uh, from an asset allocation standpoint if that is sort of our assumption, reasonably healthy fundamentals? And, by, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, no one's talking about screamingly healthy fundamentals, just reasonably. They're good fundamentals, good earnings, economy is, is in a good position, but we're not necessarily talking about like unprecedented economic growth and earnings growth acceleration, correct? And the U.S. Mm -hmm. is doing okay. I think the problem is the rest of the world, right? And if you look at, um, you know, the U.S. consumer, 70% of the economy is fine, but the business confidence has, um, you know, uh, is deteriorated. And the rest of the world, like Europe and Asia, is, is not doing very well. So that's where you have to be worried about earnings, I guess, and you have to be worried about, the, as you said, like it's not all green lights because of that. So, but what you, we have for us is the interest rates now you know like the tenure is back at 1.7 percent so if that's all you can make owning uh, risk-free assets uh, you know where are you going to invest yeah yeah, yeah but i'm uncomfortable with the thesis being um that it's okay to put risk on because we have face a pretty good period of asset price distortion in front of us i like the fundamental argument more than the great like the Fed's going to muddy the water so much you won't know that you're making bad investments argument. Mm -hmm. I'm having almost a little deja vu here because the conversation we had in 2017 around, you know, probably solid fundamentals, increased volatility, then as a result of our, our projection for rising rates from the Fed. And yeah. we were talking a lot about alternatives at that point in time. And I'm kind of seeing right now that this conversation lends itself to talking more about alternatives as well right now. And for those, for those out here who don't know, alternatives, we're talking about hedge funds, perhaps private credit, uh, private equity, things like that, uh, a period of enhanced volatility lends itself to, you know, alpha generation on, uh, on a relative basis now, right? No question. No question. I think, uh, I, 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 especially, by the way, if you're at primary equity diversifiers, fixed income, and the 10 years at 1.7%, mm -hmm. uh, you still want that fixed income on for your kind of extreme deflationary hedge, but alternatives make a lot better sense to me as a diversifier, and you have opportunity to make money around the volatility. Some hedge funds are very good at exploiting the volatility. It's not something we would try to do directly with a dividend portfolio, something that alternative managers can do. Private credit, I don't think they're going to suck away any liquidity from these guys anytime mm -hmm. soon. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree. I think it's a good way to, to you know get uh, some return without having to play beta. Dale, you agree? Yeah, I think so. And we've been steadily increasing our exposure to alternatives for uh, quite some time now. And I think that that argument makes a lot of sense, especially if you look at the data. Alternatives tend to do well when there's a good, good bit of dispersion, when, uh, when things are pretty volatile out there. I think that uh, clearly in this environment, when you're talking about fixed income, what's really important about fixed income is understanding the downside because the upside is limited. And uh, right now, with the tenure at uh, one seven or so, I think that maybe uh, you know, like David said, you're you're gonna need some in there for some sort of deflationary hedge, but uh, maybe looking to take a little bit of fixed income off the table and allocate, like Robert said, towards alts or you know equities. Equity valuations are not uh, stretched by any means of the imagination. So, uh, how about uh, adding a little to dividend growth stocks? You know. Well, I'll tell you, some of them did get a little cheaper last week, yeah, and, sure and, and I think we've done a good job staying on top of that and some more activity still to do. So let's uh, let's conclude with a little equity conversation. Um, I'll tell you what I like right now, and, and obviously we've talked about it as a committee, but I want you guys to kind of elaborate a bit on, on some of this. 
uh, I think the energy thesis uh, right now is as misunderstood as I've seen it in my uh, professional career. I really believe that, first of all, so much of the bearishness focuses around downward pressure on the commodity price, which I don't even agree with that. I don't believe that they're going to get the crude oil price into the 30s and low 40s and hold it there. I think that the risk is to the upside there around Saudi Arabia's Aramco IPO next year anyways. But even if I believed as a U.S. company energy investor, even if I believed in $50 oil instead of $65 oil, I think that you just have screaming opportunities right now with the better run companies in energy infrastructure. You agree, Julian? Yeah, I agree. And I guess it's uh, it's interesting to see the performance here today. This is the worst. The sector, you know, is up like three percent against uh, Health, uh healthcare, the S&P. healthcare was was behind it for a while, yeah. and now in the last couple of weeks, healthcare yeah. is passed. No, healthcare is slightly better. So really, I mean, this week the worst are energy and financials. I guess in anticipation of the, you know, rates getting lower, getting cut, it's not helping the whole sector. But year um, to date, it's energy sector has been really uh, weak, and I, I guess if you own the strongest player, the one you know that have have seen the test of time and be able to raise dividends and and grow earnings uh, for you know decades, I think they can you know deposition to uh, uh, to do that whatever the environment. And we've seen back in 2015, 16 when the when the um, oil price was so weak, they didn't cut dividends; they were doing fine. Yeah, yeah, it's uh I think that it energy like like you said, I think it's very misunderstood. I mean, if you look at a lot of the reasons out there why energy's not catching a bid, there's so many different competing reasons. Uh global growth is slowing, manufacturing isn't doing well, China. I don't think any uh, the market really uh is it, I don't think it's justified and I don't think anybody really understands why uh you know, with oil levels are where they are. Why energy companies are trading at, um, you know, as far as valuation goes, uh, historically speaking, uh, to the lower end of the range. So because of that misunderstanding, I think there is opportunity. And I'm not exactly sure what the catalyst is, uh, honestly, but I do know that we're being paid to wait. A lot of these companies have yields in the you know, 3 to 6% range, and uh, and you're getting substantial midstream, care. Midstream, uh, closer to 8%. Yeah, midstream, clo- yeah, closer to 8%. So I, I, I don't, I'm almost indifferent if the market gets it in the short term or not. I don't care, given that we're being we're being paid in the interim. So. Two, two answers to that. My own portfolio. I hope it stays down longer. Yeah, exactly. For for <laughs> client psychology, I guess I'm supposed to root for it to go higher. Yeah. Okay. Um, big tech, new tech, cool tech. Uh, is its days as the leadership sector over, Robert? I, not quite yet. Um, but soon, uh, I say that both from, you know, just my perspective and also for my desire, um, <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of these companies, uh, you know, are operating in some countries illegally. Uh, they're going to come under increased scrutiny. When, when you look at anything politicians from both sides agree on, I, I get a little scared there and the deregulation of tech is one of those sectors. So I would be, uh, worried a little bit if I was, uh, overly heavy in a lot of this cool or new tech type of stuff. Uh, from that perspective, and then you also look at um, you know the global regimes around tech. They're 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 chasing uh, revenue. We look at what's been happening in uh, France, uh, taxing some of the the big mm-hmm. tech companies. Um, that's a little bit scary. If I was a holder of those those companies as well, Julian. Um, 
Well, I, I think the, you know, as long as there's uh, the Fed put and the risk appetite is very high, there's always going to be bias for, for the, the big tech companies because they have growth, because they, they get financed, uh, you know, they get financing for not making profits. I'm not going to give any names, but it's, you know, the destroying businesses coming with new business models. They don't make any money, but the market is ready to finance them. And, you know, with money being so cheap, it sounds like it's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't agree that uh, because something's been happening, it ensures it continues to happen. I think that the, we have lived decade by decade by decade to stories like that ending with no warning whatsoever. The difference here is I think we're getting a great warning. A bipartisan support uh, for somebody, for different reasons, different agendas, different politics. People wanted to take that down. And you're not saying... This is like the financial companies in the early 2000s, the energy companies in the early 80s, they were brought down with secular forces, but they were brought down as they were cash flow generating machines, like the just nastiest return on equity creation you've ever seen. These companies don't even have that. It isn't like it's Elizabeth Warren versus the cash generating prowess of this cabal of big tech companies, they're not even cash flow generating machines. They're just high valuation companies because the markets continue to support it. And I and I, so I think that those forces up against each other at some point something gives. And the and to me, if we're late cycle, which I believe we are, the tradition it's not perfect. I, I recognize that the tradition of you don't go from high tech, high valuation, high beta growth to cash. You go from high tech, high beta growth to value to cash. I think you're going to see just a rotation that takes them out, not necessarily um, just a, a, a cataclysmic collapse. It would be a rotation of leadership. That's my that's my take. Mm. Uh, Dea, last question. Do we want to play in low beta or high beta right now? Oh, okay. Well, uh, I think that well, maybe that is a bit of a softball. I think that we want to, given the higher volatility, we want names with uh, that have a better risk reward skew, have better downside protection. Those are low beta names. So, so that would be my bias. It would be towards uh, low beta names. Okay, join. Well, our portfolio, the dividend equity portfolio, is built with a, a low beta. Um, the idea is to have income uh, stocks, you know, defensive. So I would say by definition, what we do is more low beta. Uh, that said, um, at the moment is cheaper. You know, the one that I've suffered are the higher beta stocks. So probably, you know, if you want to on the margin be buying, I would say today we're probably going to be buying, um, you know, uh, stocks that are relatively higher beta, but still in our universe of low, low beta stocks. I mean, I think our portfolio beta is about 0.8. And I, yeah, I'm not sure if, People know what beta means, but I guess the idea, what it means is basically when the market goes up 1%, if you have a beta of 0.8, that means that your underlying stock, so if whatever stock has a beta of 0.8, is going to go up at 0.8%. So it's the correlation uh, to the market, the coefficient of correlation to the market. And that's, you know, basically the lower the beta, the less correlated you are to the market, which would be ideal if you could make returns without having any market correlation. Robert? Low beta with support from uh, growing dividends. So I'm going to borrow from all three of your answers, and I hope those of you listening get an idea of how smart the people I try to surround myself are because they're all right, and, and I'm going to pull it together in this sense. I don't believe 
that we are aspiring right now to buy low beta or high beta. And we were aspiring to buy dividend growth. And one of the often accompanying features of fundamental dividend growth is lower beta, as Dea referenced your caveat. I think to Julian's point, um, there are some higher beta names that have even become more distressed in this recent market volatility than some of the lower beta. But beta is not a driver of a portfolio philosophy. It's a result of a portfolio philosophy. And the fact of the matter is that as long as we're focused on companies growing free cash flow and growing dividends from that free cash flow, you generally get an experience that's lower beta to market. Interestingly, some of the companies right now that are most attractive in cash flow generation have had higher betas, not just higher betas than we're accustomed to in our portfolio, higher betas than they are accustomed to having in their own averages relative to stock market. And some companies that you would think of traditionally as being higher beta, higher volatility, they've become kind of lower beta names. Uh, you look at some biotech companies that have a very low beta, you know, it's very interesting. So I think that that's important for investors to, to take hold. When we talk about those low beta names in fourth quarter of last year that really defended the portfolio, that were much more defensive, this was not something that we said, hey, let's hold these names in because they have less correlation to market and they're lower risk. They were fundamentally more attractive on the thesis that we make our driving decisions by, dividend growth. And that just provided the ancillary benefit of lower beta. So I don't think I don't think any of us are saying anything different. I'm just sort of trying to crystallize that that collective message. Yeah, that low beta experience is incidental yeah. to our stock selection. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think that's true of a lot of other parts of our portfolio. Julian will run the reports and you look. I, I think sector allocation is another thing that's incidental. I I, yeah, me too. I, I, I and that's just kind of the the way that having an actual governing philosophy of how you manage money. You, you you focus on the on the drivers that you believe in, but then you let these incidentals come and analyze them for what they're worth. But uh, okay, we're gonna leave it there for the week. Anyone have any closing thoughts, Robert? All set. Yeah, that, that was. Uh, that what do you, you think? First time doing this. Year? I'm in a uh, good company to say the least. All right. So. <laughs> if we have time for one more thing, I just wanted to ask you about one asset class we haven't mentioned because <clears throat> everybody talks about it all the time. CNBC is always on the topic. It's one of the you know of the the, the assets that have done very well this year. It's gold, and I'm sure you're you know. Um, whoever is listening to a podcast as a, as a viewer and like to hear what you think about it. Well, I, I don't uh, believe gold is an asset class, okay? So so I view, um, go, we used to be owners of gold for many, many years, including most of the years that it was going from something that reached $250 an ounce to, you know, $1,500 an ounce. It was $1,900 an ounce eight years ago, and now it's it went to $1,200, stayed there forever. It's come back up a couple hundred bucks. So everyone's talking about, oh, boy, gold's moving higher. That must That's everyone being defensive, protective. You want to talk about non-correlated, quote-unquote, asset class. Gold goes down all the time when risk is coming off. Gold goes down all the time when risk is going up, and vice versa. There's no rhyme or reason to why gold performs the way it does. But the reason why we reject it as a holding in our client portfolios is very much tied to the reason why our equities are cash flow-generating companies, is I want some internal rate of return. I want some cash flow generation to measure the risk and the reward of the investment over time. And gold, I have to own as a rank speculator. And my clients don't pay me to speculate with their money. That's the way I view it. 
That is not the same as saying that I don't see a technical argument for gold to go higher or lower at any point in time. But the most common argument people make for running gold is its inflation hedge. And as mm -hmm. I read a whole chapter in my dividend growth book about the fact that gold's been an atrocious inflation hedge. Um, the fact of the matter is that we are now about 40 years from a, a high level of gold where along that time, uh, you have seen inflation between 2 and 3% per year. So a lot of uh, compounded erosion of purchasing power. And gold is sitting at about 50% of its inflation-adjusted level from 40 years ago. 40 years is enough time it's supposed to have kind of caught up to inflation if it's this world's great inflation hedge. Um, so it has psychological benefits for people. There's trading arguments and so forth. But the biggest thing I'd say, this is scary, what I'm about to say. You can't even make up in a fairy tale how creative and aggressive central banks have been in the last eight years of world history. And gold has a negative return in that period. So gold's supposed to be this hedge against the craziness of central banks. In this period of time of $15 trillion in negative yielding assets, of quantitative easing that ran up our balance sheet, $4 trillion. God knows where European Union's balance sheet is. The Japan going and using their money to buy corporate bonds and index funds. I mean, from, from Operation Twist to quantitative easing to Draghi's bazooka to negative interest rates. Th this has been a period of central banks run amok and gold is down. So I just don't buy the argument that gold represents a sensible safety solution that alliteration I just did. Yeah, I think that was a really good explanation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess after that. I haven't really thought about yeah. this much. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I can see. Okay, so we'll, we'll yeah. talk more about gold, but I thank you for giving me that chance because I do have strong opinions yeah. on the subject. All right, guys, that's All it. Right. Thanks, everyone, for yeah. listening to this week's Dividend Cafe. Coming back to you more. Market volatility continues. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced here may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinion, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower should not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.